Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. In this podcast, we listen to the stories of those underrepresented in medicine or those with an exceptionally non-traditional background. I would like to thank David DeRoche for his guidance and the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio for their support. Today's guest is retired U.S. Army Captain Gregory Galeazzi. Captain Galeazzi is from Glastonbury, Connecticut, and graduated from Loyola University, Maryland, with a degree in business administration. Upon graduation, he enlisted in the Army as a second lieutenant. He earned his Army Ranger tab in 2008 and was deployed to Kandahar, Afghanistan in the summer of 2010. In May of 2011, after meeting with local leaders, Greg was hit by an IED while leading his platoon back to base. He lost both of his legs above the knee and part of his right arm. There was no medic around, which meant no pain medication, like morphine. His troops rushed to his side and applied tourniquets and was eventually rushed via helicopter. He would go on to receive over 50 surgeries and months of rehab. He would also go back to school and took pre-med classes at night. He was eventually accepted into his number one choice for medical school. Captain Galeazzi is currently a fourth year medical student at Harvard Medical School. It is my great privilege to be able to listen to and learn from Greg's story today. Welcome and thanks for joining me today, Greg. Uh, glad to be here. You have a pretty big family, right? And most of them, or a lot of them are in the military. Um, so of the seven kids in my family, the four of us boys are all, uh, all went into the army. And um, my dad was um, spent a few years in the Navy after college. So was that something you kind of knew about at a young age that you were going to join the military? I don't know if it was something that I knew I was... I was going to do, I think it's something that I was definitely exposed to and learned to appreciate hearing my dad sort of, you know, share stories about some of his, his journeys, um, serving in the Navy. And then he just sort of raised our family to be very patriotic, sort of oriented, I guess. Um, you know, it was just something that was exposed to. I don't think there was ever any pressure. Uh, and then just sort of as the years went on and I saw my older brothers going to college. Family, um, we weren't poor, but we didn't have a ton of money, so we needed scholarships. And uh, I saw all three of my brothers get Army ROTC scholarships to go to college. And just, you know, sort of observing them and hearing about their experiences, seeing how they grew and matured, hearing about the adventures that they had, and knowing that it was uh, a great way to help pay for school. It just became kind of a, I don't know if it was an obvious choice for me, but something that I, was really hoping to get involved with. And um, I think it was my junior year of high school was when the September 11th attacks occurred. And I think that uh, any interest that I had in the military at that point um, was only sort of fueled by the events that happened uh, when I had a sort of a, a renewed interest, not renewed interest, but sort of uh, after September 11th attack, basically, wanted to help serve and deliver justice to the people that did those horrible acts. And I'm sure most of your classmates don't even remember the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, definitely 
guess I'm about a, a decade older than most of my peers in my year group. There are times when I feel like I'm, you know, five decades older than them. And it's, it's events like that, uh, where, you know, I talk about growing up in the nineties. It's not just like I grew up 34 years old to be 35 uh, in October, but I remember the pre 9 11 era. I remember going to the airport and all that stuff beforehand. Um, and so I definitely have memories and have very vivid memories of that day, you know, sitting in Spanish class and hearing the principal come over the intercom while I was sitting and doodling and daydreaming about the girl sitting across from me. Um, and talking about how our nation was under attack and how planes had been flown into the World Trade Center. One had already crumbled and the other was on fire. And I don't think anybody, myself included, had any idea just how much that would change the world. So you go to college in Maryland, right? And you're doing business administration. So at this point, medicine wasn't really, that wasn't in the picture to do medicine. No, truth be told, you know, I, I never considered medicine uh, as an, an option for me growing up. I was never really a bad student. You know, got B's, some A's here and there, the occasional C. I think the one thing I had going for me is that I loved learning. So I always went to class. Listen, I loved learning. The thing is, um, I never, I always just picture the people that became doctors and astronauts and things like that were basically a different breed of human. And I just wasn't one of them. Um, what I failed to recognize and I didn't realize until basically towards the end of college and really not until after I was out of college was I just wasn't really applying myself. You know, in undergrad, when I was busy drinking beers and chasing girls, uh, the guys and girls that were studying pre-med, they knew when to, you know, drink the beers and chase, chase the girls type thing. But, uh, they also knew when to turn it off and go to the library and, you know, put in the hard work and discipline. So it wasn't really until after college that I found myself in my initial days of, uh, training to be an infantry officer. Um, when I, you know, it dawned on me really at home that, you know, I'm training to lead American troops during a time of war. And in 2007, when I graduated college and was commissioned in the army, um, it wasn't a matter of if you'll get deployed. It was just a matter of when. At that point in time, we were in full swing of things in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was a very long and, and messy conflict. So, uh, I was struck with the realization that you've got to take this seriously. Like you can't half-ass this, Greg. You need to give this all you, all you got. Your, uh, soldiers that will be serving under you, they're going to be counting on you to have done the best you can, um, to be the best leader for them. Their families back at home are counting on you. Uh, the American people that have, uh, put their trust in you. Uh, are counting on you. The Afghan uh, local nationals, what have you, or wherever you get deployed, those people are going to be counting on you. And so for the first time in my life, I really applied myself um, and, and started giving my all. And once I did that, I started finding I was capable of a lot more than I gave myself credit for. And once that realization came, that kind of opened up a lot of doors, such as medicine that I had previously um, written off. I honestly don't really know too much about the military. So you and most of the people in this country. Yeah. I mean, yeah, seriously. And I think as, like you said, most of us, I don't know if it's cause it makes us uncomfortable, but we kind of like push it aside. Like we don't really want to hear about that side 
of like the military and combat. Yeah, no, there's definitely growing, a growing divide uh, within our entire country between the military community and non-military folks. And again, I don't really, I don't have at my fingertips um, numbers to back this up, but I have read over the past few years different reports about who these days are is enlisting in the military and it seems to be kind of this shift towards families that have sort of established histories of serving in the military tend to be the people that the next generation are re-enlisting and the folks that have very little or no connection to the military um, aren't really stepping across that line. That's obviously not a, you know, applies to everybody, but I've heard that that trend, and if that's true, that kind of is going to just further sort of create almost like this little warrior class in a sense where it's just the families with the tradition of fighting in nation's wars and everybody else who just pays their taxes, but doesn't want to really talk about it. I actually gave a, uh, one of our classes, online classes ended today and for part of the final project, me and one of my classmates who's a former listed Marine, we gave a presentation on uh, veterans health. You know, split the first half was talking, we talked about sort of demographics of, you know, who are our veterans, um, who's serving, who's enlisting. Uh, and then uh, my classmate then talked the second half about the Veterans Health Administration um, and stuff like that. Because truth be told, to the best of my knowledge, four years at Harvard Medical School, they don't talk anything about that. But the Veterans Health Administration is one of the biggest um, single, you know, providers across the country and all the territories. Estimated 20 million veterans roughly currently in the United States. That includes like 85,000, more than 85,000 veterans living in Puerto Rico and all these different, all these different things. And here at Harvard Med School, we're one of the medical facilities we're affiliated with where students can rotate through is Boston VA health centers. And on one side, I'm really, really happy that we have that opportunity and my classmates can get exposure to um, the work that's being done there in that population. One of the unfortunate things is that general consensus I've heard from a lot of my classmates who rotated through the VA. They say, well, like, oh, how was your experience? They say, well, you know, not bad, but it's mostly just old white men that say a lot of inappropriate sexist and racist things. Believe me, I have no doubt that that was their experience. I, I can picture those uh, individuals in, in my head. However, uh, if that is the only exposure people are getting, that's the only takeaway people are getting. I think we're doing a huge disservice to American people and uh, to the veteran um, community. Um, so that's why we were advocating to have um, at least a required session, at least like a one or two hour, the very least lecture that should be required uh, before people graduate from here on these issues of veterans health and uh, the Veterans Health Administration, especially when they're all across the country and many residency programs are affiliated with uh, VA centers as well. So high likelihood that people rotate through there and, you know, of the millions of veterans that get care through the Veterans Health Administration, there's also millions of others who are eligible who don't get care there. And there's millions of other veterans who aren't eligible for healthcare through the VA but knowing their military exposure risks, knowing uh, healthcare issues that apply to this population are going to be essential because you are undoubtedly, no matter where you go, you're going to encounter veterans at some point. Uh, the last thing I'll say here with this, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but 
you know, if there's one takeaway that I would hope people get is I'm not surprised that uh, people are mostly only exposed to old white men right now when they're doing rotations at the VA. Looking at the demographics, the history and the history of the military, most of the diversity uh, and inclusiveness and reform in the, uh, within the you know, institutional reform within the military has really only kicked off um, since 1973 with the all-volunteer force and the abolishment of the uh, the draft. In fact, you know, obviously the military is still dominated by males, but looking back, a lot of this stuff, it, it's not, it, it's rooted in discrimination and unequal rights with, uh, with women and women being treated as sort of second class citizens. And a lot of, you know, sometimes known as the invisible veterans. I learned that I think up until like 1967, there was basically a legal quota or limit or cap. Uh, to the number of women who could serve in the military was limited to 2% of the force. So it was 1967 that was removed. Then, you know, 1973, all volunteer forces implemented. And since then, we started to see a lot more minorities going into the military, as well as women increasing from 2% back then to currently they're around 10 or 11% of the military force. There's a lot of, you know, racism and you know, institutional policies that that were restricting that stuff in the past. And if you think about it, 1973, if you were 18 years old, then basically brand new military, let's just say, or new institutional reform, 1973, people start enlisting then at 18. That um, demographic is just turning 65 this year. So I feel like we are only just now beginning to start to see the shifting demographics that have really taken hold over the last 50 years since the implementation of the 1970 of volunteer force. And if people are basing their, you know, impression of the VA and, and that population strictly off of, you know, the old white men that they're seeing right now, we're setting ourselves up for failure because as more minorities and women and, uh, 2011 finally repealed, uh, don't ask, don't tell, you know, there's, there's been a lot of progress that's been made. We still have a lot of progress to go, uh, or long ways to go on this. But as those populations become more and more common in the military and more uh, represented, and you know, more and more people are going to be coming in, and that will is also going to shift the healthcare needs of the military. It's not just going to be white male healthcare. We need to be worrying about LGBT, you know, health issues. We need to worry about women's health. We need to worry about transgender rights and all these different things. And if we are saying, eh, at Harvard Med School and these elite medical institutions, you know, eh, the VA is just a bunch of old white men, guess what? We're going to get caught off guard 20 years from now because we're not thinking about implementing these issues and addressing these healthcare issues now um, rather than waiting for us to kind of get caught off guard and get behind. So that's my rant. But big takeaway, the military... It, uh, you know, it's not perfect, um, but we are more diverse than the civilian population, and the diversity is continuing um, to change in a lot of positive ways, and it deserves the attention of physicians in training. And how have the veterans, how have they reacted to you when like, they see you? You know, how do veterans specifically react to me? I don't know if it's uh, too much different from how anybody else reacts to me. I think whether you're a veteran or not, seeing uh, one of your providers rolled into your hospital room in a wheelchair missing both of his legs 
you know, it takes people back for a second, makes them think. But I'd say in general, you know, not just veterans, but most people, how they reacted to me. Um, it's been very positive. I really haven't had any, any negative experiences being uh, in a wheelchair um, or what have you. If anything, it's really helped me build um, close connections with patients, establishing trust. You know, I'm not trying to put words in my patient's mouth, but if any, you know, I mean, it's just perhaps a sense where there's all these providers coming through their rooms, telling them to do this, take that, you know, tell them, oh, you know, just deal with it or it'll get better. Uh, but most of these people have never been in that bed. Um, and when I go into the room, there's an immediate understanding that I at least have been in a hospital bed. I, I can empathize to a certain extent uh, with some of the things that they're going through. Um, and building that patient bond, it's one of the hardest things that people can't teach here in med school. They can teach all the science, um, but that bedside manner and, and building connections with patients, fortunately, that comes naturally to me. So um, I think a big part of that is, you know, the image for better, for better or worse. Uh, I think it's it helps in, in terms of eliminating some of the barriers uh, between me as a provider and the patients. So when you were a patient after your injury, you probably had those similar thoughts towards your provider, right? Of what do you know what I'm going through? I might have had a lot of thoughts back then, everything from, you know, faith and existence in the world and pain and all this, uh, probably wondering about whether or not my doctor's you know, knew what I was going through. I, I didn't worry about, I didn't wonder about that because I know nobody knew what I was going through. So it wasn't really on my mind. I, and I know that today, and I, I just one of the first things I talk about with patients, uh, if I'm going to start sharing my own experiences, I let them know right up front. Listen, I, I have no idea what it is you're going through. I probably can relate to you better than some other docs uh, can, but, uh, at the end of the day, I don't, know what you're feeling. Um, no one else does. No one else knows about the personal stuff and everything in your life that you're thinking of. So I say, I know what it's like to be a bilateral above knee amputee with a fused right arm, but I don't know what it's like to be a spinal cord injury patient. I don't know what it's like to be an eight year old kid at children's hospital, uh, you know, a brain tumor. I don't know what it's like to be expecting mother, you know, who delivers a stillborn baby. I was like to be the parents of a teenage son or daughter who gets killed in a car accident, drunk driving accident or something. This list can go on and on and on. At the end of the day, can't trade with each other, you know, and who's to say the suffering I've endured is any worse than any of those other people I just mentioned. There's not some sort of hierarchy of suffering, you know, and oh, I got it worse than you and you got, no. It's futile to even think about that stuff. It's just all any of us can do is make the best we can out of the cards that we get dealt. Especially in this day and age, you know, we tend to compare one another and we tend to compare things on like a hierarchical list. But like you said, you know, we'll never truly understand what someone else is going through. It's easier, easier said than done, the comparing... You know, I, and I say that not because I'm a pro at it, but because I eventually caught myself doing it. I, I caught myself and I realized that 
all this does comparing myself to other people and comparing myself to my former self, it changes nothing. All it does is make me stir my mind about, you know, things that aren't the way I want them to be. And yet none of these things I can change. So it's futile to even stress. All it does is make you depressed and stressed out. As soon as I stop comparing myself to other people and to myself before getting injured, I think that really helped me just start moving forward. Because, you know, people would send, they'd send peer mentors and whatnot around in the early couple of months after my injury. You know, someone to motivate you. And you know, I, I also lost my, but sometimes it'd be like someone who comes in with a single below the knee amputation. And I'm not taking anything away from that, but there's a lot of data out there to back this up that uh, the challenges and the struggles of being bilateral above knee amputee um, are like night and day versus someone who's otherwise healthy, except they have a single below the knee amputation. So I found myself always comparing. But then it would, then it would get into these nuances. Well, that guy's missing two legs, but he's got one above and one below. He doesn't know what I'm going through. Oh, well, that guy, you know. And right, I was trying to do this hier- hierarchy of suffering. Well, who's got it the worst? And eventually I realized, you know what? doesn't make a damn difference. And, and something else to think about, right? On the surface, you could say, you could look at me and say, uh, and compare me to someone who just lost one hand. And you could say, Greg, you've got the worst injuries and worst disability. And in many ways that, you know, that's true. Um, however, in terms of the human suffering aspect and the inner turmoil that causes the patient, um, what if that individual has dedicated his life to being a professional pianist? It's how he, it's how he reduces his stress. It's how he is a creative outlet. That's how he provides for uh, his family and all these different things. The loss of that one hand might be equally devastating to that individual. So at the end of the day, we don't know what anybody's fucking going through. All we can do is take the cards we're dealt and make the best of it. And did you find, like maybe looking back, I know this is a tough question, but like bringing in these peer mentors and people who go, was that helpful at all for you? Sometimes. I I think it's whether it's you're doing counseling with a therapist or you're working with a peer mentor or somebody, you know, the interpersonal connection that you you build with somebody and that bond, um, it can't be forced on anyone. Uh, It can't always be predicted. Um, So some people connected with me just better than others. I can't necessarily explain why, but it's just like making friends. You know, some people connect better than others. And so I, I mean, I definitely think there's a place for it. And I think it has, it's, it's, uh, there's, it can be powerful, um, but it's a matter of finding the right sort of matches. And for anyone who's on the patient side of things, I always encourage people not to give up. If you just had one peer mentor come in or you, or you've got a lot that you're dealing with mentally, um, and you go to see a counselor and that you don't find a connection with that person. You're talking about real personal stuff. It's important to have a good connection. But sometimes it just doesn't work out. And some people, they, they give up after that because they say, eh, counseling's not for me. Um, but whatever it is, I always encourage people, you know, finding new people, try somebody else, you know, see that next mentor that they're going to send through the door. Be open to seeing a new counselor, something like that, because it's well worth it once you find someone that clicks and connects and can help guide you. It's sort of nothing else motivates you and lets you know that things will be better. 
And how have you found talking about your experiences or reflecting on them? Have you found them to be helpful? I can only imagine, again, kind of like the mystical thing. Uh, I can't compare it to me not sharing my experiences. I've always been kind of a, a talker and um, pretty open with people. Uh, but I can imagine that it has helped me immensely. For, for example, I don't, I don't really struggle with any of the classics with PTSD, some sort of the flashbacks, nightmares, um, things like that. I don't get nervous or my heart starts racing when I talk about it or anything like that. Then again, from day one after my injury, as soon as I was starting able to be you know, conscious and engage with people, I've been talking about it. And it has to be have been positive for me because I've shared this story so many times and truth be told, it's not something I want to forget. I, you know, the injury that I sustained is arguably the single most life changing experience I've ever endured. I don't want to forget it. I want to remember it. I want to learn from it. I want to grow from it and I want to use it experiences and the insight I've gained, the perspective I've gathered from this journey. Uh, I want to use that to be a better doctor someday. So if anything, as time has gone on, it's been almost 10 years now since my injury. Um, it kind of pains me that those memories are fading as time goes on. Because as bad as the, the physical pain was, it put a lot of things in perspective. You know, excruciating physical pain that I endured in the first year or two, especially after my injury, it really just puts your life in the perspective and sort of recategorize what are the important things to focus on. But as time has gone on and, you know, it's, I'm thankful that uh, sub-severe pain is far less common than it used to be. You know, I've kind of returned in many ways back to normal life where I get frustrated with traffic and get disappointed when it's raining out and I was hoping there's going to be sun. So, and, and on good side, you know, it shows that I've returned to a new normal and I'm moving on with my life. Um, so that's great. But like I said, there was so much that I, I gained as an individual um, perspective wise from the negative stuff in life that uh, not that I, I'm hoping for those things to come back, but I don't want to forget them. No, there's, there's one thing that you said on, I think it was with ABC in your news report that really stuck with me because it's something that maybe it's a new thing with these platforms of people opening up and talking. But, you know, you mentioned after your injury, like you had a good support system, you had good family, you had good friends, good community. But like at the end of the day, it was like you, you were with your own thoughts and you were like dealing with all this pain. And like, again, I can only speak for myself, but I sometimes feel with when someone goes to like a traumatic experience, we just like to hear, oh yeah, like Captain Galeazzi got injured and now he's in med school. Like, oh, like it was all dandy. But I think it's so valuable to like actually talk about and like being vulnerable about all those stuff because, you know, if someone's going through that, they can totally relate and know that they're not the only ones who are like in their own thoughts. And that's one thing where, you know, perhaps the perspective of having been a patient and spent a lot of time as an inpatient with a lot of surgeries and things like that, where I feel like even though we don't talk about it. I, I seem to have a better insight than some of my peers in terms of those struggles. You know, we round on our patients and depending on the service you're on as a med student, you might have 
lot of time with patients. You might have very little time with patients, especially on surgical rotations. You do this rapid rounding in the morning and then you're off to the ORs uh, and you might check in on people before you leave end of the day on the post-op floor or something like that. But, you know, I see I'm from the medical provider team here that it's like sometimes the only interaction now with the patient is like five, 10 minutes in the morning when you rotate with them and you won't see them again until like the next day. And it can be easy for us just to sort of, we tune into that patient for that five, 10 minutes. Let's say we had to pre-round on them and write some notes. We'll say we gave that patient a total amount of our brain power, you know, 30 minutes to an hour throughout the course of a day. Um, the rest of the day though, unless we were getting called or paged from the nurses or something was happening with them, they were stable. We weren't even in our, you know, purview, but I know better than most that the patient isn't just, you know, the patient's not just thinking about themselves for one hour in all 24 hours and weekends. So when we're, when we sign out in the afternoon after, you know, evening rounds or something like that, whether it's four in the afternoon, five, seven o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, whatever it is, we go home. We go back to our beds, we eat food, we work out, take a hot shower or something. All of our patients are still sitting in a hospital bed, uncomfortable. They're scared, they're naked. They might be in pain. They might be have a certain diagnosis. There might be a terminal illness or something like that. Or in many cases, you know, unknowns. We're waiting on tests to come back. And we work really hard as med students and whatnot, but that patient, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning and they wake up and it's dark and they're scared and their family's not there and they're in pain and they might have, you know, their fully catheter might be leaking or something like that. You know, things are beeping and things are going off and they finally fall asleep at, you know, five thirty in the morning and we come in at six fifteen, flip all the lights on and do rounds. And then we leave 10 minutes later. We don't seem to, you know, there's so much, that affects a person in those situations. But most of the time, I mean, at least in this day and age, we have tablets and smartphones and things like that that help distract us. But speaking for myself, most of those days were spent in inner turmoil, wondering about my past, my present, and a very uncertain future. Is there anything like leading a platoon that you still use today in like med school. They're obviously veterans, but for the most part you're with, you know, these students who are never going to know what combat is. So what was that like dynamic? Obviously, you you know, huge, huge differences in terms of leading a platoon, everything from uniform that you're wearing, the people you're surrounded by, the mission that you're tasked with doing, the place that you're in, that, you know, the threats, the, the risks that you're taking. Lots and lots of things are different. That said, military world, business world, medical world, whatever it is, um, there's definitely common themes in terms of just leadership, self-discipline, time management, a lot of those things definitely translate over. And having now, you know, set foot in both the military uh, officer side of things, I can tell you that I see very, a very clear correlation between junior officers uh, coming fresh out of college and doing some initial training to whatever their specialty is going to be and then going off to their units. Um, they're young, they're relatively inexperienced in the field, and yet 
they are put in positions of seniority over numerous subordinates, many of whom have years and years of experience, um, you know, to offer that the, the brand new lieutenant does not have. And there needs to be sort of a mutual respect between the officer's rank uh, and position to lead, leading a unit, but also that officer respecting sort of his subordinates uh, and their experience and not uh, ignoring that. So the correlation between that and junior residents interns showing up on the boards, because uh, in a very similar fashion, you know, come out of medical or come out of um, undergrad, we go to med school a little bit, but more or less we're all young, inexperienced people that suddenly graduate med school and we find ourselves as interns. And although we have little experience in that position, uh, we're put in positions of leadership and having to make the ultimate decisions on things. So specifically, like I said, time management and you know self-discipline are, are two big things. Um, medical school is, uh, is a lot of that, a lot of time management, a lot of discipline. I can imagine most medical schools are, are similar to here at HMS where there's so many opportunities for different things. There's advocacy or research or volunteering in different clinics or doing podcasts or whatever. There's, there's no shortage of things that we could dabble in. What it comes down to is you, no one's going to manage it for you. No one's going to hold your hand. We need to have discipline for ourselves knowing what we can handle, what we're already doing, when to say no to certain activities and, and focus on other responsibilities, how to prioritize different things, how to balance reading about our patients and preparing for the next day of rounds, as well as studying for the shelf exam that we have in a couple of weeks. You know? And then just in terms of leadership, um, although it's not necessarily, you know, lead, you know, follow me into a, charging machine gun, you know, sort of thing in a combat zone. A lot of leadership is just people skills and knowing uh, it's kind of like orchestrating uh, a, a team. Um, you know, as a infantry platoon leader, you know, you have your mission, but it's not a one-man job. It, the mission doesn't get completed without the entire team working together. And it's your job as that officer, not to do it all yourself. It's your job to assess your resources and the personnel you have, um, know what people's strengths and weaknesses are, know your limits as a leader, know when to ask for help and things like that. All that stuff translates into being a, a physician. You know, you'll have nurses and social workers and physical therapists and case managers, all these people who likely have been doing this job for a lot longer than you have. Um, and being that leader, you need to know um, your limits. You need to know when to be humble enough to say, I don't know this, but it's in the self-interest, in the interest of the patient that doesn't care who, who finds the answer. I don't get credit for it, whatever. It's all about the patient care. And so knowing the resources you have, orchestrating those things, putting people that are in positions where their strengths can shine and compensate for other people's weaknesses and things like that. So a lot of leadership, getting the ability to think fast on your feet in, in both medicine and the military, 
There, there is no book out there big enough that could ever uh, detail what to do in every situation. Um, every single day you find yourself in uncharted territory. There's no answer out there. You kind of just have to use the time and resources you have available, uh, the education and training you've had before, common sense and your own sort of moral compass uh, to make a decision. When you've said about one of your um, members of your platoon who was, I think, 18, and you've stated like this 18-year-old probably would have, in normal society in the civilian world, he probably would have been like looked down upon and yet this guy was like applying tourniquets on you. I don't know. I don't know if that, so I know what you're talking about. Uh, I think when I, uh, that was kind of a hand wavy thing. I don't know if it's if I refer to a specific soldier. Uh, it was kind of a general comment, but about soldiers, not only in, in the platoon that I was leading in Afghanistan, but in general, uh, a lot of folks that I encountered in the military and in other aspects of life that I think in general, most people tend to focus on what people can't do. Uh, they screw something up and that's what stands out to us. You know, you hear people in the workforce talk about, you know, they always do their job and they do it well. Um, and no one pays anything. They don't hear anything and they screw up once and make one mistake. Uh, and that's what stands out. There's no one, no one cares about you when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, it's only when you make a mistake. And so anyways, a lot of, you know, a lot of junior enlisted guys I worked with, you know, they, they're not, weren't college educated. In a lot of ways, they were to write down their resume at that time. You know, people back here in the States would look at me, well, you don't have this, you don't have that, you're missing this, this isn't good enough, X, Y, and Z. But what I realized is those same guys, for the record, when I'm, I'm talking very masculine here in terms of uh, guys, this and that, for the record, at the time that I was serving, uh, it was still an all-male infantry unit. So I apologize to anybody out there who's thinking I'm not including women. It's just I'm, when I'm telling these stories and kind of picturing certain things from my time there. So these soldiers, you know, that's the same ones that would have perhaps a shitty resume back here in the States. Are some of those loyal people that you can, you know, there's so many qualities that they have, you know, complete selflessness. People that would, without, you know, a second thought, jump on a grenade to save their friend's life. You know, yeah, I mentioned, you know, the day I got injured, my soldiers rushing to my life, my side and saving my life, putting tourniquets on rapidly in a chaotic situation and calling in a helicopter from God knows where, and that me out. Soldiers that, by and large, for almost a year in Afghanistan are very high stress situations and high stakes situations, you know, were completely obedient to me, made my job easy as, as a leader. Um, basically, a lot of qualities that are overlooked here in the States. And so my big takeaway from that that I want people to know, and it goes back to leadership, is as, you know, as a leader, it's not our job to focus on things people can't do. It's to find the strengths in people. And then encourage it and guide it and let that and let their strengths, um, flourish. And then to put them in positions where those strengths are able to benefit the team. Um, and by orchestrating your, your subordinates 
and putting everybody in positions strategically where everybody's strengths are balancing out other people's weaknesses. That's the point of leadership. That's how you accomplish the mission. It's not just you as a leader. Obviously, you need to focus on personal growth and development and training and educate yourself um, and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're not doing any of this stuff in medicine, military, or otherwise on our own. And if we do, we're not going to get very far. We're not going to do it as well as we can as a team. So learning how to work as a team, learning how to lead a team, I think is really, really important. But yeah, absolutely agree. I, you know, folks with disabilities, you know, the, the mere fact that it's called disability, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to get here in the semantics. I'm true. If of any disabled person, I'm like the least, like, I don't get offended by most things. But just breaking that down by itself, it's like, the very first thing you're labeled as is you don't have the ability or something like it's already, it's already just the, the label is already focusing on you're missing something and you can't do something when fuck man it's like i've got a lot of good things to offer i have a lot of talents i have a lot of love to give i have a lot of you know knowledge to share i have a lot of just that and the other thing if people would only focus on the strengths that people had and the things that people can do rather than focusing on things that other people can't do and putting them down for it, writing them off or brushing them aside, then uh, I think we could as collectively as a society and world accomplish a lot greater things. I went to uh, see Travis Mills. He actually spoke at our school, the quadruple amputee. And, you know, he talks about, he's like, you know, like, how should we like approach you? And like, what do we say? Like, what don't we say to offend you? And he was like, you just start off by saying hi. Yeah. You know, you've talked about it. It's maybe us being uncomfortable for some reason, but like, we just need to be exposed more and it's our own fault. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm glad, glad that you've had that, you know, personal revelation, but it's, uh, I don't think it's your fault. It's a society problem, you know, growing up. Very quickly in the public school system, the kids with disabilities quickly get, at least my memory, you know, uh, talking about my own experience, kids with disabilities got whisked away into special ed classes or something. I really didn't see them that much. And, you know, I think there was one kid that was, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, his family must have had to fight the school system to allow him to stay in the you know, the regular class with people because he was the only one that I remember sort of interacting with. But looking back, I, I, I was a kid, so I don't know, but looking back, I'm pretty sure that he had Down syndrome. But the mere fact that he was with us in a lot of our classes and things like that, like if there was anything growing up, if anyone would ask me about any disability and have any understanding and insight into it, that was the only one. And the fact was, it's because he was in my class. He wasn't um, segregated out into a different, you know, room where we never saw them. So I, I think it's a societal problem. You know, even in, within medical education, uh, I'm currently in a group here at at HMS that's working to try and uh, incorporate disability education into the curriculum. Something that's missing, and then and part of the stuff we're talking about is is having training sessions on how to conduct an interview or a physical exam with a patient with a uh, disability. And we haven't really moved too far forward yet. We're still in sort of just the 
brainstorming stages. But exactly, every time I think about it, like I was like, oh, how do we talk to people with disabilities? In my mind, I'm always like, say, hey, Greg. I, you know, one thing, uh, I, I'll add one piece to that that I would say, you know, there's, I think it's more, it's probably more complicated than, or complex than just saying like, hey, you know, because we have to know about our own personal um, biases, explore self-reflection and what, you know, what does disability mean to us and how are we responding to that uh, positively or negatively. So there's a lot of that stuff. But one a bit of advice for you moving forward in your medical training and for anybody out there who's listening, uh, one thing that I can add to this conversation I think would be helpful with people with folks with disabilities often have a lot of a long history in the medical field as patients. We've had a lot of doctor's appointments, a lot of testing done. There's been so many notes written on us. We're used to meeting with new people and residents and med students, and it can get exhausting at some point. One of the things that I, again, I'm not speaking for everybody who has disabilities, I can speak for myself, one thing I really appreciated was when someone came into the room and whatever pleasantries we made, uh, when they started by acknowledging that they've read at least part of my medical record. I get it that, and I maybe have some slightly greater appreciation now in our training as a medical student that you don't always want to take for granted the, you know, history and physical exam that somebody else took because they might not have done a good job. You don't know where, you know, maybe they just copied and forwarded from the previous note or something like that. So, you know, it's, it is wise to still always take uh, a full, thorough history and everything like that. That said, the difference between someone sitting me down and saying, hey, so I'm, I'm so-and-so, I'm, I'll be your new doctor or something. Uh, so what happened, you know, what happened to you? Or, you know, how much movement do you have from your arm? Right then and there, I'm like, did you even... Like I've had over 50 surgeries. It's a long freaking story. I told this damn story how many fucking times. I already told the nurse out in the waiting room. And I told the med student when he came in here and freaking asked me asked me the same damn questions. Now you are coming here. Like, even if you have read my my medical record, by just going in and saying like, "So what's wrong with you?" For, by the way, my arm has been fused. There's no movement whatsoever. It's been fused since 2012. It's not moving anywhere. No movement, doc. So that's like an, almost an ins- sometimes I would take that as an insult as a patient. Like, really? Like, I've gone through so much in this medical system. There is, hun- there are hundreds of established notes on my medical history. All, most of which has not changed. Guy injured in 2011 by roadside bomb, bilateral amputee, fused right arm, you know, X, Y, Z. None of that's changed. That's all like the first like three or four sentences of my medical history of every note. And so when you're saying, oh, like how much movement do you have in your arm? And what happened to you? I'm, I'm saying this is a 15 minute appointment at best. And I'm going to spend the first five, 10 minutes of it explaining to you shit that you already should have known. So that always got to me. But I prefer anything I do with patients. I get it. I don't expect someone to read my entire medical history, right? It's a long sense of thing, but at least acknowledging it. So when I go in and talk to patients or when people talk to me, I appreciate when they say something along the lines of, you know, Hey, I'm, so, I'm Dr. So-and-so make whatever initial pleasantries and then something to the extent of. So, so I read that you, you know, it sounds like you were a soldier. You were deployed back in 2011, I believe injured. 
obviously uh, bilateral, you know, acknowledge these things and, um, pretty sure you, know, you said that your right arm is fused. Is that right? Like, yeah. And you're like, okay, you know, um, so, so help me just fill in the gaps here. And, and then you can, and you can ask whatever other questions you want, but acknowledging that as a provider, you at least took a moment to find out who the hell I am and started thinking about me and my healthcare needs before walking into that room. I appreciate that so much versus, wow, we're at the start of 15 minute appointment. And now you're just looking at my name. You don't know who the hell I am. How much thought are you really giving to me and my needs? Is How much are we really going to get out of this 15 minute appointment? If you're just doing all the background stuff and now we only have five minutes for you to explore these things. It's kind of a, a waste of my time. It was a little disrespectful to me. So that's my two cents. At least even if it's just a one or two sentence thing to acknowledge, Hey, you know, sounds like you've been having some cold symptoms for the past few days. Uh, tell me about that. Acknowledge that before I walked into this room, I was already thinking about you. I'm already kind of, I already have a plan for where I want to go with this rather than, Hey, hey um, so what room is you in? You know, sometimes that, that works. Other times, not so much. I would think that for people with disabilities or long sense of histories in the medical system, that is a huge benefit. Are there things in your medical education so far that people don't understand about people with disabilities or yourself? In terms of how has that clicked with me? I'll tell you, there's one thing that, you know, again, I, of all disabled people out there, I'm really one of the least like sensitive folks, you know, it just it takes a lot to really, you know, get under my skin or bother me. There's like little things here or there. Uh, you might, I'm sure you've heard this. I can imagine more and more people are going to be saying this. Um, I've been in a number of classrooms now where someone would be like, sitting is the new smoking. And I get it. Okay. For most people, it's probably like a, a catchy little, you know, fucking thing that's, oh, wow, like sitting is really bad for our health. You know, we need to be more physically active. I get it. But when a dude is sitting in a wheelchair right in front of you, what are, you know, well, What's, what option do I have? You know, so there's little things like that where it's like, um, phrasings of stuff. Uh, I think we've gotten a lot better as a, so a long ways to go in terms of changing our language around gender and race and sexuality, pronouns, all these different things. I think disability is, um, behind the power curve in many ways. Other than that, you know, through my own recovery, I, appreciate uh, on a very deep level that there's a lot that goes into a successful recovery um, and being able to regain independence and you know have a you know improve your quality of life uh, so much that goes on beyond just talented surgeons um doing surgery on you and getting your pain under control physical therapy everything from I don't know, music to nutrition, uh, all these things. It's a whole holistic approach. All these aspects. If you're eating like crap, you know, whatever medications you're on, you know, they might be doing something for you, but you'll probably feel better if you had a, you had a proper nutritious diet. As difficult as physical activity might be, um, for folks, I can speak for myself. The more physically active I am, the better I feel. 
the more, even though I haven't struggled with any severe depression uh, or anything in, in a long time, thankfully, I still go, I still have just routine once a month, once every other month counseling appointments that I go to. Uh, why? Not because I'm in any acute distress, but because I have been in those situations, those initial years, dark periods after getting injured. I don't ever want to get back there again. I don't want to find myself in a, in, you know, down in the gutter and then reach out for help. I'd rather just have, you know, keep my mental health in check and have scheduled, regularly scheduled appointments that I can go see someone, talk about stuff. Med school in itself, being a, a new father, uh, with a lot of family dynamic stuff going on. There's a lot of life stressors. Life's a lot of com- more complex than, complex than it used to be. And so I keep my mental health in check. I don't, you know, so I try all this stuff that they talk about from, you know, mental health to whatever. A lot of people, they don't have physical disabilities. They've never had major psychological distress where they've needed to pursue counseling. They've never had to be on different medications. They've never had to spend a night in the hospital. They've never, they're still 23, 24 years old and physically fit. Uh, just like I was at some point and I could eat, you know, whatever the hell I wanted not work out for a month uh, and then go out the next day and run 10 miles and be like, ah, I'm a little out of shape. Yeah, I remember those days too. Uh, sitting in a wheelchair now at 34 all day, gaining weight. I really got to watch what I eat. Skin grafts and things like that. And they get cut, they don't heal all that well. And so from personal hygiene to nutrition and all these different things, um, I have an appreciation for all of that. You know, I, so when I went to uh, the Travis Mills talk he came and it was mainly like the the therapy students and he was just like the funniest no filter and i'd be laughing at things like people would be like oh you know a little bit uncomfortable but i just thought it was hilarious because i was like dude this guy is awesome he just does not care travis i know travis yeah he's a funny guy well he makes he makes anytime you know travis is like me in in humor in a lot of ways well i think a lot of us you know of our cohort of both of the young men and women that got blown up. Humor is, is, a, is a great healing tool. It helps you talk about things. It can help you discuss and explain really difficult um, subjects. And I think for people that are not used to us, you know, I make a, I make a joke about getting my leg blown off or something. You know, I'll, I'll, uh, I like to insert things like so many expressions that we make that involve feet, you know, get one foot in the door, you know, I um, got one foot in the grave type thing, you know, started out this morning on the right foot. So a lot of times I'll, I'll be healthy, like, oh, you know, I started out this morning on the right wheel. And, you know, people will be like, some people will chuckle, other people will be like, Ee. but it is what it is. I did a, I had to do a presentation for class a few months ago and uh, you know, each student was going up, they stand in front of the room, deliver their presentation. So I went up and I said, you know, hey, so it generally works that uh, the presenter stands and everybody else sits. But since I'm going to be sitting, I'd like the rest of you to stand. And like, people were like, uh, and like some people started to get up from their seat. I was like, I'm just <laughs> you know, sit out. So, you know, me and Travis, I think, and a lot of us, you know, we get that you got to have, uh, you got to laugh. We're all serious about stuff. Have you seen like a change though with your classmates in terms of like when they first met you to now, have they maybe gone more accustomed to like your humor or like being around you? 
Yeah, I think that's the case. I, I've realized that's the case for being uh, disabled any, anywhere I go. That's one thing I'm still struggle with to this day uh, is, you know, trying to find my place um, and get used to how I fit into society and how society views me being disabled because uh, it's different. Half a second before getting injured, they treated me one way and now I get treated a different way. So I'm still trying to reconcile with that because I talked about earlier, you know, I feel like I, I know I have so many talents and gifts to offer the world, people around me. But for the vast majority of people that just encounter me on the street or in the mall or the grocery store, I don't have time to hand in my resume or talk to them about being a medical student at Harvard and, you know, all these different things. It's, I'm just the disabled vet in a wheelchair. And that can be tough. But with my classmates or being in an apartment building or whatever it is, once people get to know me, I become less of the disabled vet in a wheelchair and I just become Greg. You know, people start to know things I might need help with, things I don't. You know, when first someone sees me, everything I do, whether I drop a pencil on the ground, I can, I can pick up my damn pencil. You know, people get up across the room, spill their coffee on the way, trip over something, running to try and help me. I appreciate you trying to help me pick up my damn pencil, but I got it. You know, so help, help me open the door. And all they end up doing is like blocking the door because they're standing in the door and trying to hold me. At some point, it's like, I got it. So at some point, as time goes on, people realize Greg can handle the door. Greg can handle picking up his pencil, but they might see me outside and I drop a lot of things in the ground and they're rolling all over the place. And like, you know, so people just, they start to know me, they know what I need, what I don't need. Um, and that's nice because then they just, it's just you. They treat you like you. And I think that's a, a bigger theme, but like just in society, right? Like interacting more with all different types of people. Like, so we can know like, oh yeah, Greg doesn't need, we don't need to pick everything up for him. You know, like you said, when we grow up, I feel like most public schools, you kind of just put, people here in this category and then everyone else kind of just over here. I, w- I wouldn't, I would let people know yourself included and anyone who's listening to this, that don't think that you take a class or you do whatever and you figure it out or, or if you screw something up or you make an awkward comment or something's uncomfortable and working with someone with disability, don't beat yourself up over it. You know, I don't know how to talk to everybody with every disability. You know, I'd probably be able to go talk to a bunch of war vets with amputations and we'd probably, uh, you know, more similar page, but I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and truth be told, as a disabled citizen, like I said, I'm still trying to figure this out and how to interact. I'll be honest. I don't always give the people around me even a fighting chance to do the right thing. The, the door holding example, uh, and this is something that I caught myself doing. I go back to time to time and reflect on this for how I need to change my behavior. And there have been times where I'm going into a building right behind someone. And if the person stops and holds the door for me, in my mind, I'm like, you know, asshole. What do you think? You think of me like I'm incompetent. Not that I'm saying this, but like, like I scoff at them or something, or I'll make a snarky comment or something, or I'll just, I'll clearly and very obviously go to the door right next to them, open the door, like in that, the schmuck standing there holding the door for me. Um, I'm like, I can do it myself sort of thing. And then that same person though, I could be going to the same building right behind them. 
and they'll look at me and then go into the building and not hold the door. And based on what I just said, you think that's what you wanted to do. But that's happened to me too. And I, and I remember catching myself thinking like, what kind of shitty scumbag citizen doesn't hold the fucking door for a disabled dude in a wheelchair right now? Like, you know, and when I realized myself doing that, I said, I'm not even giving people a freaking fighting chance to do the right thing. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So I don't know if all disabled people do that, but the bottom line is, you know, whatever you, whatever you do, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. Don't beat yourself up over it. You just apologize or something. You say like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Or, um, or if you experience a lot of times where you're making comments and you're picking the wrong thing. That's where kind of like the interviewing skills go back and, and maybe asking people up front, how do you want to be addressed? Uh, is there anything I can do for you or what have you? Um, and if you get it wrong, you know, we as disabled people, we need to be patient with everybody else. And if somebody flips out on you for something, you know, let them flip out. As long as you weren't trying to be a jerk and you're going to learn from it and you you know, politely apologize and say, you know, we're trying to do better next time or something. That's the best you can do. Uh, we're all learning. We're all learning. We're all growing. So interesting. You said about like having that thought of like, I can fucking do it. Yeah. I think it's like a good thing and a bad thing. You know, what, what I have learned about the door holding thing is that sometimes it's just a lot easier for everybody. So I just say, thank you. You know what? I rewarded that person for doing a good thing and hopefully they'll do another good thing the next time versus if I, you know, flip out on somebody because I got offended because they are, you know, at the end of the day, that person's trying to do a nice thing. And maybe the next time someone behind them might really actually need help holding the door. But they're going to think, I did that one time and the guy freaking flipped out on me. I'm not going to do it. So taking a step back when we catch ourselves, that's why, you know, journaling, you know, self-reflection, um, you know, in med school here, they talk about the importance of, uh, of reflection on, you know, our work and what we're doing and everything. Um, that's how we really grow. That's how we improve with these things. Um, a lot of it's through trial and error. And sometimes it's not just learning about the way everybody else is and everything else. You know, it's sometimes like me in this situation, I had to stop and realize, wait, I think the big problem in a lot of these situations, these scenarios that are working me up and making me frustrated is me. This little cognitive behavioral therapy thing. This is what's happening. This is how I'm processing it. And now this is the action that I'm taking. And this is results in my behavior. And you know what? If we can pause before the behavior and change the way I'm interpreting it, rather than interpreting it as this person's insulting me, I'm interpreting it now. I try and interpret it as I'm trying to do a nice thing. They don't know me that I can do it, but I'm expecting to know me. They never met me. They've never seen me before. And they're trying to do a good thing. And it, you know what? It's easier on you, Greg. It's easier for them and everybody to just say thank you. I didn't want to ask you the same things that people have kind of asked you over. I know you've answered like a, a bunch of things, but I'll just leave it to you if there's like any final thoughts. I appreciate that. From a pre-med standpoint, you know, you and I discussed this a little bit earlier about, you know, things finally clicking. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts on pre-med. One, my experience of the pre-med the whole pre-med world is it's a very discouraging sort of world to be in. I think when I showed up for my post-back pre-med stuff orientation, the very first thing the person had us do before talking about 
what we had the courses we had to take and when we had to take them and stuff before uh, completing pre-med stuff was, all right, take out a pen and paper or something and write down uh, two things that you would be happy doing if you don't get into medical school. Um, and that was like how it, my pre-med world started. Basically, lack of better words, saying, all right, like, welcome to pre-med. But before we go any further, just know that you might not get it. So already start making plans for that. And I was kind of just like, really? Like, what the hell? Like, uh, so many, when I told people that I was planning on applying to Harvard, it was like, other people said it outright or not. It was like, is that going to be a waste of uh, money, the application fee, um, this and that, don't want to get your hopes down and stuff like that. But it's just very, dis- you know, people telling me not to even bother applying to certain schools and I ignored them. It worked out for me. But basically, you know, I, I think people should be realistic that it's you know, a tough field to get into. Med school application rates are, are low anywhere you go, not just at Harvard. You know, any American medical school is very competitive. Uh, you're going to get great education anywhere you end up. I just, I wish that it wasn't so discouraging. I wish that people would just be positive and hopeful and don't let anybody tell you no, you know. Someone tells you not to apply here, apply there. If you want to, do it. You never know. Uh, one example, uh, hopefully I'm not going to throw off the admissions numbers here, but at Harvard example, right? I think at the time I was applying, trust me, I, I'm not on a high horse. Oh, I'm going to Harvard. None of that bullshit. I'm really happy that I'm, I'm here, but I think I would I, I think I would have been grateful to get into any medical school or go anywhere. But, um, but, you know, the U.S. News and World Report rankings, whatever stock you put in those, Harvard's ranks pretty high. But we have a class size of roughly 160 medical students. I remember the same academic year of applying, I think Georgetown, it was perhaps, that they were maybe more of a mid-ranked, whatever you want to call school or something. Um, but they have something like this very similar number of seats that people are applying for. But... Because Georgetown's more of a mid-tier school or something, Harvard's a top-tier school. Harvard, the year I applied, received something like 8,000 applications from those 160 seats, whereas for the same number of seats, Georgetown received something like 15,000 applications. So it was like people were telling me no, but I don't know. You know raw, just numbers-wise, statistically, your chances of getting into Harvard or better. Um, but, but a lot of people just get discouraged. They say, oh, I'll never get into our group. So they don't apply. They say, oh, my, my, uh, you know, pre-med advising office, they told me I, this, these tier schools I can apply to. Well, I don't know. Like, is that really a better thing? I didn't take no for answer, but a lot of people just, they don't know. They get shuffled along this path and they take for granted what the experienced pre-med advising office has told them to do. Uh, at, at the med school here, we get, uh, they send out a list every week during the interview season, the list of applicants that are coming to interview for the week ahead. It says their name, uh, the school that they're coming from, and their um, hometown. I usually skim through to look at this. Anybody from my undergrad campus, uh, undergrad university, shout out to Louisville University in Baltimore. Um, look to see that anybody from there or anybody from my hometown in Connecticut. It's like... So many 
of the students that I see, the universities that they're coming from, Harvard, Columbia, Yale, Stanford, you know, every once in a while, there's like University of Illinois, you know, University of Maryland, these, these other colleges that aren't the Ivy Leagues. And while I have no doubt that, sure, maybe Harvard draws more applicants and has some preference for Ivy League students and what have you, I can almost guarantee that pre-med advising offices and what they're encouraging their students to do and how ambitious they're encouraging their students to be um, also is greatly affecting who's applying here. I'm not the only one from a non-Ivy League undergrad school to be here at, uh, at Harvard by any stretch of the imagination. I can imagine most of those other state schools or what have you, um, their pre-med offices are less likely to encourage their students to apply to the top tier schools, whereas the people at, in the advising offices at the Stanford's and Columbia's and Harvard's are saying, yes, absolutely apply to these schools. So anyways, don't let anybody tell you no. And the other thing is you get discouraged with a lot of those pre-med courses, the chemistries and the bios and the physics where you can say, man, I'm just sitting here studying about a planet's gravitational pull around a black hole. How does this apply to medicine? Stick with it. You will be rewarded greatly for learning these fundamentals. As I was talking with with you, Eric, earlier, you know, it wasn't until I took, you know, sort of a capstone human physiology class where we started learning about how the lungs and things work, where finally everything came together. And I realized if I had never took the organic chemistry to understand you know, acids and bases dissolving in solutions and the chemistry or the, um, the physics of ions moving down electrochemical gradients or the biology of a cell um, and things like that, I would never be able to know how the lungs work or how the heart works or anything. But once I had developed all that basic knowledge, even though it was like, what the hell's going on? This has nothing to do with treating patients. Trust me, it does. And it will, it will make you be able to stream through learning medicine when the time comes. And trust me, once that moment comes, it comes at you fast and you're going to learn a lot and you'll be grateful for all those fundamental courses that you took. Uh, and then from, from med students, I would recommend that people pace themselves. You know, I'm obviously in a different place in my life than the traditional med student applicant, but this is a long career ahead of us in this career is going to take a lot from us. I know we're all eager to get out there. We've been ambitious to get into this world for a while. There's so much things we want to do from research and treating patients and advocating for patients and this and that. And by all means, feel free to get involved with those things, but don't feel pressured by people, whether it's attendings or someone who wants to pull you in on research or your other classmates seem to be doing more volunteer work and so you need to try and keep up. Listen, there's so much medicine to learn any one aspect that you choose to delve into you could work yourself to death doing it so it's about pacing yourself uh going the long run making sure that you're setting up keeping your personal health your really social relationships all that stuff outside of medicine and school keeping that stuff healthy giving good physical exercise routine even if it that has to come at i need to prioritize my physical health and getting physical exercise rather than writing more research papers um, because in the long run, it's going to be more sustainable for you to have a better balanced life to be able to handle times of stress better 
if you're attending to all these other aspects of your life rather than trying to go, go, go and, you know, do it all. Um, you've made it to med school. Take a breath because residency is going to come it's right around the corner and it's going to hit hard and you're not going to be afforded as much of uh, the time that you have in med school to sort of maintain your life and things like that. So anyways, just pace yourself. Don't feel pressured in doing stuff. It's a long career and you'll be able to accomplish a lot if you pace yourself and, um, you know, intend everything both in, within medicine, professionally and outside of it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Greg. I really do appreciate, I really do appreciate your time and, you know, hopefully we can keep in touch. This is really useful for me and it's been helpful. It's inspiring your story, but you're a good role model, even just for me, for, for everyone. I appreciate that. I, 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 I'm not, uh, I know I can talk a lot about wisdom and just and things you should do in leadership. Listen, I'm, I'll be the first to admit I'm not the best leader out there in the world. I'm not the wisest person in the world. I still screw up a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and I've uh, hopefully learned from them. But uh, like I said, we're all learning, all of us. As long as we, we never sort of accept or, or stop and fool ourselves that we figured it all out, uh, that keeps the door open for continuous learning and improvement. So. Um, I appreciate you saying that stuff, man. And, uh, and I learned a lot from you guys as well. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Behind the White Coat. Please make sure you subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify so you can get notified when the next episode is released. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.